His story, God's unfolding plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. As I said, if you've read books such as Graham Goldsworthy, Gospel and Kingdom, or Vaughan's Roberts, um, God's Big Picture, or Goldsworthy's bigger one, According to Plan, follows a similar sort of outline, seeing how God is working his plan of redemption from the beginning of the Bible to the end. I've stolen some of uh, the titles from Vaughan Roberts, some I've changed, and but I'm sure he won't mind if I steal titles. He just had everything starting with P, so I went with it, because it was catchy. Okay, let's open up in prayer as we come to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we don't just want to pad out 30 minutes with some talk. Lord, we want you to do a a deep work within our life. Lord, we know that my preparation, my words, my planning is worth nothing if you don't work through it. Lord, I desperately need you. I desperately needed you as I was preparing. I desperately need you now as I I bring your word. Lord, all of us, we need to hear you speaking to us, not just um, people in front of me, but myself included. Lord, that we might see and savour the wonderful King, Jesus Christ, who is at the centre of your plans for this world. And Lord, may we never become familiar or think of... Uh, Your death and resurrection is common, but that we may cherish it just as we did as we first saw our need for you. Uh, So help us to understand how your Bible fits together as we continue in this series this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was a Bible college student, you know when you're a student, you don't have much money and you think, what am I going to do for some extra cash? Now, initially I, I got to Bible college I didn't drink tea or coffee and I thought you cannot go into pastoral ministry without drinking either. So I tried both. I thought coffee's better than tea so that's what I went with. I'm still yet to convert um, Keith Aver. Um, that's going to be my project while he's here. Um, but So I thought I was going to work in a coffee shop because eventually I got really into it. Got a coffee machine which I was doing for all the other students at Bible College. But I ended up just doing mystery shopping. Now, if you think in mystery shopping, it's going to be wonderful income. It's not, but it's fun. The majority of times, just going into shops, you buy things, you have to fill out a little survey online. Basically, it's about what did the customer service did you receive. Now, I thought it was exciting when I had an opportunity to do a hotel and then an airline. Now, everyone's thinking, man, I'm going to sign up for mystery shopping, free nights and hotels and free trips and airplane. When you see how much paperwork you've got to use for those big, big item things, you're like, no, it was like about 40 pages each direction for the domestic flight of things to fill out. It wasn't fun. But one of the things I did always find fun was when you got to test products that were not yet on the market. You got to see a glimpse of something before anyone else had to do it. Now, I never got anything fancy or exciting, but anyone who knows me knows I love a good Zooper Duper. Now, it wasn't actually a super duper I got, but to think that some company actually shipped one ice block in a big foam esky with ice and dry ice delivered to the Bible college where I was studying, they say they denounced over the PA for me to come and collect this, this one ice block. Can't remember what it was like, can't remember if I even liked it. But there there was, it was a little glimpse of something that nobody else had the privilege of seeing at that point in time. So I don't even know if that product went to market because... I haven't kept notice. But as we've been working our way through this overview of the Bible, we see how God just keeps giving us a little bit more of a glimpse of his kingdom plans. 
throughout from Genesis onwards, you see, he gives us a little bit more of an insight, pointing us towards Jesus and pointing towards the perfected kingdom as it comes to an end. This is our third part as we're going through our series from Genesis to Revelation. The goal is to see that God has one united, cohesive plan from start to finish. That we're not just talking a collation of unrelated historical events that that don't, don't fit together in any sense. But it's the story of God's work in the world, God's dealing with mankind, centred on Jesus Christ. And particularly with regard to plans for a kingdom. For God to be the king who has a people for himself in his place, under his rule, which is the greatest place of blessing. The idea we put forward is it it allows us to see the big picture, kind of like the the front of a box or of a jigsaw puzzle that not only shows you how it all fits together, but how each of the individual bits contribute to that one single picture. So it helps us look at how does the Old Testament and New Testament relate. And we've seen how all of the Old Testament points us forward to Jesus and find its fulfilment in Jesus. And the New Testament, because God's plan is unfolding, he's continually revealing more and more, even the New Testament gives us God's interpretation of our Old Testament events. But we begin from a paradise-like kingdom in the Garden of Eden, all the way through to the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, looking at God's kingdom plans centred on Jesus Christ, the plan that God had before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1.10 says, to unite all things in him. The three defining marks, we've been looking at various stages where God gives us a little bit more of a glimpse of what his kingdom would look like, that he has a people, a place, a means by which he rules, and because he's the good and perfect king, to be under his rule is the perfect place of blessing. So where we're headed this morning, as we do every single week, we're going to the story so far, just an overview of um, where we've come to at this point in time. But today in particular, we're going to focus more on... um, the people that God places over uh, the rule of his people in the Old Testament history. So as we go into the story so far, we began with what we call the pattern of the kingdom, where from the beginning God creates everything. And because he creates all things, he's the rightful owner and the rightful ruler of everything which exists. We see a picture of God's people in God's place under his blessing and rule, where God's people were Adam and Eve, The place which he designated for his kingdom was in the Garden of Eden. And while they were under his rule, there were perfect relationships. Adam and Eve had perfect relationships with God, perfect relationships with one another, and even perfect relationship with the creation in which they lived in. And while they remained under the rightful rule of God, everything was going exactly as it should and exactly where it was best for us. The moment that it turned sour was in an act of treason when they stepped out and said, God, you're not the ultimate ruler of my life. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'll decide what's good. I'll decide what's bad. And they take the very piece of fruit which God had said very clearly to them, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And so you go from a, a pattern of a, how a kingdom should look to a kingdom which is perished, where God's people is no longer Adam and Eve, but nobody. The place is no longer in the Garden of Eden because of their disobedience, they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And because the place of blessing is underneath God's rule, because they've taken themselves from out of underneath God's rule, 
The result of their disobedience was curse. But what we've seen throughout the roller coaster of up and downs of different visual perspectives of God's kingdom, even though sometimes it looks like it's getting in the right direction, then there's a dramatic fall because of human rebellion. That doesn't hinder the plans of God. Even after the fall of Adam and Eve, we see a gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 that one who is coming who will reverse the effects of evil, who will crush the serpent's head. The first promise pointing us to the coming of a saviour. We look through all up into Genesis 12. Genesis 12 again follows after a major downfall after the Tower of Babel. But God's plan continues to unfold where we see God's promises to Abraham. Promises of a people, of land and blessing, where the people were Abraham's offspring. The place was the promised land of Canaan. And under his rule there was blessing both to Israel and to the nations. And then as we saw, as the New Testament authors give us insight, looking back to those promises, it says, and that offspring of Abraham, the seed to whom that belonged, didn't say offspring plural, but offspring singular, that these promises find their fulfilment in Jesus Christ. Then we move through the book of Exodus, how God prepares a people, how God actually calls a people back again for himself, to put them into a place, into the promised land where he'd rule over them. In Egypt, we see two saving acts. Firstly, we see the Passover where the angel of death passed over and only by God's provided means of blood, even were the Israelites safe for the firstborn. But then there was his actual physical bringing them out of Egypt. And we say God never just saves people from something. He always saves them from something and to something. And so he promised to, to, to Moses, I, when I bring you out of Egypt, you will serve me on this mountain. So they go from serving Pharaoh to serving the true and living God. So God's people were the Israelites, the place which is a, of a temporary nature in the, in the wilderness, in the tabernacle. And they were given the law, the means by which God's rule could be established and obedience to that rule was blessing. We see that in Deuteronomy 28. All of the blessings that come through obedience to God's good and perfect law. But as Jesus understood himself to be the fulfilment of the law, the New Testament authors even pick up on the idea of, of Jesus' death and resurrection as being the new Exodus. And under Joshua, eventually the people do take possession of the land, which we read about in Joshua 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to the fathers and they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he'd sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood him for the Lord had given them their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Now we've made that statement so many times throughout it. When God makes a plan... Everything he sets out to achieve, he achieves because he is the ultimate king. There is no higher and greater authority. But today we're looking at life in the land underneath human leaders that God has appointed as his representatives. Starting first at the judges as God's representatives. Now before Israel had kings, they had judges. 
Judges not so much like we imagine them today, but judges' role was to mediate, but the standard by which they mediated was the good and perfect law of God given to them. So they were effectively representatives of God, making sure that his good, perfect rule was being carried out amongst the people. We see it even described in Deuteronomy how their judgments were effectively God's judgment because they were based on God's law. Moses writes, And I charge your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case, if, if it's too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. Now, judges weren't to be partial. means the judges weren't to have their own ideas what they thought was good. They had a good and perfect standard, which was God's law, which was the means by which God ruled over his people, and in obedience to that, was the greatest place of blessing. But a judge, because they were effectively representing or carrying out God's, God's commands on this earth, they're kind of representatives of God. That's the reason why Psalm 82.6 even refers to the judge and says, I say you are gods. Not because they were deities in any form, but because they carried out God's good rule as they mediated his laws for the people. Now, as we've gone through from Genesis, we've seen a whole lot of sin. No surprise, and that's what sin does. It spreads. We've seen judgment. We've seen repentance. We've seen promises of salvation. We've seen God's grace and mercy. And the book of Judges is certainly famous for its repetitious cycle. Where the people sin, God punishes and judges them for their sin. They cry out to God in repentance. God raises up a judge who rules according to God's good law, and then there's peace in the land. And that's not just a cycle that goes through once. It's over and over and over again. And you could be tempted to think, not real smart, are they? How many times do they need to see that there's consequences for their sins? How many times do they have to see the good grace of God before they think, obedience to him is the place to be. This is what's best for us. But it goes round and round and round. And I imagine if we search our own life, we probably ask the same question. Why don't I learn this? Why do I keep going around in the cycle? Why do I keep turning my back only for God to call me back to himself? Why do I see his wonderful grace and mercy and then forget it and go off on my own way again? It's a frustration we all face. And the book of Judges doesn't exactly end on a positive note. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Remember, we've seen moments where the actual tangible expression of God's kingdom looks like it's making good trajectory. Other times, because of human rebellion and failure, it looks really bad. I mean, this description, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, looks like it did back in Genesis 6 when God says, I regret I even created mankind. But is there a glimmer of hope there? It says, in those days there was no king in Israel is providing of a king is this going to be the solution so we look at our third item the rise and the fall of the monarchy it's certainly no surprise that a monarchy was coming it's been stated pretty clearly we saw as we went through the section on the law and looked in Deuteronomy chapter 17 
God says, when you enter the land, you will ask for a king like all of the other nations. It says, it needs to be someone of my choosing. It means to be one of your own brothers. It gives a list of things not to do, not to accumulate riches and wealth and horses. And then it says, and the king is to make a copy of the law and he's to meditate on day and night because his role is not to be a king of ultimate authority of himself, but he is to be a king who is an expression of God's ultimate authority over the people. But even more significant was a promise that came back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, where it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. If you're wondering why I've, all of a sudden I've changed Bible versions, went ESV, NIV, they communicate the same thing, but it just seemed easier to go with NIV where it was really clear than, than to explain why they say the same thing. But what was being promised was that kings are going to come from the line of Judah. There will be king after king from the line of Judah until the one to whom it belongs, then there will be no other king. There will become a final and an everlasting king and the obedience of all the nations shall be his. Earlier back in Genesis 3.15 we saw the promise of one who would crush the serpent, who would deal with sin, deal with evil. People might be starting to win it. Is there a connection? Is this coming of a king, is this going to be the answer to all of our problems? But just as it was foretold in Deuteronomy 17, the people did ask for a king just like all the nations. We see it explained in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 8 to 9. Sorry, 4 to 9. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are too old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so that they are also doing to you now. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them. So Samuel probably gave them a bit of an insight in Deuteronomy 17 of what it would look like to have a king like all the other nations. Now the request to have a king wasn't indeed bad. Back in Deuteronomy 17, God says you're going to do it and I'll permit you to have one. But the question why he didn't like it is it says we want a king like all the other nations. We want a king who the king himself will be the ultimate authority, that we will trust in the power of our human king. That's not what God wanted. God is our rightful king. He wanted a human who would be his representative and who would um, convey God's rule over his people. And no surprise, they got exactly what they wanted and they got Saul. Got off to initially a reasonable start. But eventually he did become a king like all the other nations. Got so puffed up about his own rule and own power and eventually he was rejected by God. And eventually they get what they were called to get in Deuteronomy 17. They get a king of God's choosing, which was King David. It wasn't an easy path for him though. 
He's anointed as king as first Kings, sorry, first Samuel chapter 16, but he doesn't actually start as king till second Samuel chapter 2. From the moment he's anointed to become the king, the rest of his life between those two periods is basically him being on the run whilst King Saul wants to kill him. And you see a little bit of a picture of the king whom David was to um, be the forerunner for, pointing to Jesus, as he enters into the glory of his kingdom through a great deal of suffering. But while there was much prosperity under David, they were in the land, there was blessing, there was prosperity, there was moments of peace. The prophet Nathan made it very clear to David, you're not going to be that king. You're not going to be that one that's going to have a kingdom that lasts forever. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a pretty grand promise. They know that one was coming from Judah. Now it says, David, from your very line is going to come this king who is going to have an eternal kingdom. The one who, according back to Genesis 49, will have the obedience of all the nations. You can imagine from hearing that, you think, each time someone comes from David, is this going to be the one? The expectation that would come up. And Solomon looked like, initially, a pretty good candidate. If you read 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 11, under the early part of Solomon's reign was probably the, the high point in the entirety of the Old Testament in terms of um, peace and prosperity for the nation of Israel. But just like Saul before him, Solomon gets, lets it go to his head. He begins to assert his own authority and rule and pretty much everything that Deuteronomy says a king shouldn't be is what he becomes. The continued decline continues with his son, Rehoboam. There's a civil, civil war, ends up with the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Eventually the north is taken by the Assyrians in 722 and the south uh, by the Babylonians in 597 B.C., And from then on, there were no more kings. But just like we've seen so many times throughout this adventure, even in the middle of human failure, God continues to say, my plan's not finished. My plan is not messed up by human failure. And he continues to reveal more. Next week, we'll see what the Old Testament prophets continue to unfold about God's um, united plan for this world. But so what? Now, as every week when we look at this, we don't want to think, oh, that's interesting, we, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened. So what? Just like many stages we've seen before, when we look at the monarchy, there, there are really high peak moments, particularly the earlier part of Solomon, but there's some serious lowlights as well. But it shows us that even at the best moment of there being a human in, in the role of a king over the people, It's always lacking. It will always decline. Now, under Solomon's rule, you think, great, they're in the land. There's peace. There's prosperity. He builds a temple. There's a place where they can gather permanently to to sacrifice. But there's only a limited access to God by, by a high priest a certain time of the year. There's only a limited experience of peace and blessing for a short period of time. And it has the people constantly longing for more. We need something more. This isn't the fullness of what God has promised us. 
He's promised one who would deal with effectively the problem of sin, but we're still doing our sacrifices over and over again. It's funny, when you turn to the first verse of the New Testament, when it begins and presents Jesus, it puts you without no doubt whatsoever of who this person who's come onto the stage. In the very first sentence, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now what were the two key promises that we've seen so far as we've gone through? Promises to Abraham that one of his offspring would be a blessing to all nations. A promise to David that one of his offspring would have a kingdom that would endure forever. And Matthew, first sentence in the New Testament, here's Jesus. Descendant of David, descendant of Abraham. The long-awaited king has come. The one who will reign forever. The one who will have the obedience and blessing for all nations. The one who will deal with sin effectively once for all. Who will give us true, lasting peace with God. And who will give us deep fullness of blessings. When Paul writes to the Ephesians about the nature of who we are as a result of what Christ has done. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So there's no longer sacrifice after sacrifice. This one has come and he's once for all. There's no ins and outs of peace with God, secured once for all. And in him we have every spiritual blessing. Now this was the announcement of a king who has come into the world. The king that every single one of us has rebelled against. So as he comes into a world that is marked by rebellion and sin, you think, this isn't going to work out well. If he's a good king, he must punish that. But the astounding fact is, the king comes into the world and he bears that punishment on our behalf. He doesn't come to give us what we deserve. He comes and stands in our place identifies with us and bears our punishment and our death on our behalf. But it doesn't automatically come to us. Only by repentance, that is, saying, God, I haven't treated you rightly as my king. I have been disobedient to you. I deserve the death. But I thank you that you sent your son Jesus. I thank you that his death was my death. That his life is now my life. And because I'm trusting in him, he is my king. He is the one to whom my obedience, my loyalty belongs. But without such repentance, and this king is coming again, we're still under his judgment. We're still due to bear that penalty ourselves. But as we repent and trust him, we have forgiven, we have peace with God, We have his blessings, and most of all, we have him. This is the life we were created for, to be under the rule of our rightful king. It's full of abundant blessings. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have a difficult life. We're still in a world that is marked and corrupted by sin. Obedience to Jesus doesn't mean that everything is always going to go sweet every moment of the day. But it is a promise that obedience to him is always the best place to be. Despite the fact that human nature always says, nah, I know better. And this king is going to return. 
either to give us what we do deserve, to judge us for our sin, or on the other hand, he is coming and we can look forward to that day as a wonderful and glorious day when all of the things that are promised to us, all of the things that we long for and hope for, will be ours forever with him. That will be the perfected kingdom, which he definitely will secure. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we can't even imagine someone of, of high status in this world um, doing something significant for us. But the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, has entered into our world, come to a people who have rebelled against him, and he hasn't come to give us what we deserve, he's come to stand in our place to die our death, to bear our punishment, that all who trust in him can have peace with God, our sins dealt with, and can have entrance into your, your kingdom in its present form now, but also its perfected form when you bring all things to pass. Lord, in a moment we're going to um, gather around the Lord's, Lord's table where we remember exactly the price you pay to secure our salvation. Lord, we don't want this to be something that we just acknowledge as a fact. The King of Kings laid down his life. He, he endured a painful death out of his love to have a people for himself. Lord, how can we not be changed as we understand what you have done for us? How can we not be changed in our affections for you and our desire to live for you? And we thank you too for the giving of your spirit because without your spirit we are every bit as incapable to do the things you're called to do as we were before him. And so Lord, as we gather around your table shortly, we pray that you would minister to us and remind us of what Jesus has done. We ask in his name. Amen.